Hello, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Stratfall podcast, focused on geopolitics and world affairs from stratfall.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. As the long brewing crisis in Venezuela evolves, we'll sit down with Stratfall Latin America analyst, Reggie Thompson, for context on exactly how things are changing in Venezuela and what that country's future looks like. Then from Venezuela, we'll turn to China and a conversation between VP of Strategic Analysis, Roger Baker, and Senior East Asia Analyst, Zhijing Zhang, about her latest series on Stratfall Worldview. It's a four-part series exploring the underlying motivations behind China's ambitious Belt and Road Initiative and the challenges that China will face going ahead. Thanks for joining us. So here with me today is Latin America analyst Reggie Thompson to talk about the ongoing situation in Venezuela. Reggie, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So, Reggie, I'm getting a sense of deja vu here because I'm pretty sure I've talked to you before about uh, the state of Venezuela, specifically the, the protests we've seen in the country. I guess the question I have this time is, how are these protests that we've seen ongoing for over a month, how are they different from previous protests we've seen in the country? Well, as you mentioned, the uh, one of the main factors about these protests that make them different from what has come before is just the fact that they have lasted at their current intensity for more than a month. Um, we've been seeing the opposition coming out onto the streets to challenge the government almost every day. And that in itself uh, makes this one of the longer protest waves in Venezuelan history. The intent, obviously, um, at this stage in the game is to try to pressure both pressure the government, um, trying to force bigger splits between um, members of the government that perceive an electoral solution out of this economic crisis and members of the government that want to stick with the president, Nicolas Maduro. That's the first priority of the opposition. And um, the second priority of the opposition is to keep this issue, the Venezuelan crisis, in the eyes of um, of the foreign public. That is uh, the foreign public that is capable of doing things about this, such as the United States government. They're signaling to them, um, letting them know that they're still there. And that uh, it's a crisis that the United States, according to them, should uh, become more involved in. And that for me seems the craziest thing about this, because this crisis has been ongoing for years. And I know we look back to the major protests in 2014, but they were realistically only from a, a, a comparatively small faction of the opposition, where it seems like this time around, everyone is coming out to actually protest the government from from doctors, nurses, you know, throughout the entire class structure, it seems like everyone has finally had enough of the way the country has been run and what they've been suffering through. Yes, that is the main difference between the protests in 2014 and the ones now. Uh, you're seeing a far wider segment of the population coming out to protest, and they're protesting far more frequently. It seems uh, a lot of the protesters have sort of lost their fear of uh, crackdowns by the security forces. They show up to protest one day on uh, on a highway in Caracas, and then they just come back the very next day and the day after that. So you're starting to, to see this upswell of public anger against the government, mainly because of the economic crisis uh, that got worse in the last two years. Um, because the story of the economic crisis in Venezuela, for those uh, of our listeners that, listeners that haven't been following this as closely, uh, it's partly due to the price uh, drop in uh, oil prices uh, that was observed in the last two, two and a half years. But it's also due to just uh, more than a decade of systematic mismanagement of the public finances in Venezuela. I mean, um, the government overspent for many years, followed policies of printing more currency when it needed to cover deficits, which spurred inflation. And in addition to that, uh, created uh, inefficiency in the form of currency controls, which um, encouraged people 
public officials and private citizens to simply siphon off, the, off dollars from the main revenue generator in the country, which is uh, PDVSA, the state oil company. And so you've got these incentives for corruption um, that essentially sap the company of a lot of its revenue. So the combination of fiscal mismanagement and corruption over the years uh, led to this situation. And then the oil price decline was really just the final straw. Now, normally that would be enough to, to topple most governments, but somehow Nicolas Maduro's administration has held on to power. How have they really managed to to survive what is really irreparable damage to the country? And what we're seeing is, is really a symptom of that. So this is really down to two factors. Um, the first is that the presidency and its allies are drawing together simply because they have no better options. If the opposition were to come to power, say, through a clean and fair election, in the country, there's no guarantee that they wouldn't start taking down names and trying to imprison uh, a lot of the political elites right now that have either been involved in cracking down on the opposition or have been involved in acts of corruption in the past. And uh, for some of them who have been uh, alleged to have been involved in acts of drug trafficking uh, to the United States and elsewhere, th- this really is a, an existential threat. They might um, get arrested and sent to uh, prisons in the United States, and they really don't want that to happen. And the other way that the government has managed to really insulate itself against pressure is just through increasing control of um, everything in the country through to the, institu- the public institutions, uh, the security institutions, and particularly the institutions of the state that generate revenues such as PDVSA. And so with outright control of the public sector, the government has been able to not only determine where the money goes, how the money is spent – but also it's been able to tighten its grip over food distribution networks. So that's an outright um, warning to a lot of people. If you protest, you may get cut off from these food distribution networks. And so in the past, until recently, they weighed this when when, when deciding whether or not to protest. Uh, but you're starting to see a lot of that um, fear to some degree start to fade away as the protesters become aware that, hey, the situation isn't getting any better uh, maybe if we protest and the government somehow resigns or the president is ousted, things could get better. That, that's that's a lot of the mental calculus that you're seeing there. And this is certainly starting to to manifest not only in the protesters themselves, but something we've seen recently is a general dissatisfaction among the, the security services. And you mentioned the way that, that uh, Maduro's administration has been able to insinuate themselves into all these sort of mechanisms of power to, to maintain their, 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 their grip. But certainly they cannot allow these protests to to go unchecked or to become more violent. And a key thing they can use to really clamp down or control these is the security services, the military, law enforcement, uh, those, those entities of state. But, I mean, that runs some risks. If they can't rely on those forces to maintain order, that's a problem. But also if they do respond in a heavy-handed manner, couldn't that just exacerbate the situation further? The, the armed forces and the police forces, uh, they're the front line of defense for the government against these demonstrations. And so far, they've proven very effective at uh, dispersing them day after day before they manage to even reach their um, their protest sites in some cases. But it's important to remember that the government perceives increasing dissent from both the armed forces and the police rank and file. Because these are people who, while they do get the benefits of, you know, a steady wage and some of the potential labor benefits that come with being a police officer or being a soldier, they're still in the same situation as a lot of the population. Their families are suffering a lot of food shortages, a lot of the medicine shortages. And the real fear that the government has is that this is going to affect their loyalty, that they may not crack down on protests. Um, so to, to, to try to um, 
stop this from happening, uh, at least in the military, what the government's been doing in recent months is uh, relying on the General Directorate of Military Counterintelligence, which is uh, the investigative body within the armed forces, to go investigating incidents of dissent and, where necessary, detaining both retired and uh, current military officers and enlisted personnel. And so we've been getting reports, obviously, that these arrests have been picking up. There's no particular plot, it seems, that they're hunting for, uh, but a lot of these are dissuasive in nature. It, it's it's to, uh, to send a message to others, if you dissent, this is what's going to happen to you. Gosh, but certainly they, uh, they do run the risk of alienating the very people they rely on to maintain order. Um, as we've talked about before, Venezuela is a really difficult country to to make accurate predictions uh, about because it's so volatile in nature and to some extent fairly unpredictable. But when we look at this, uh, it seems there's got to be a break point at some stage. How do we see this going? How do we think this is going to play out in the, in the near and midterm? Really, the main factor um, that observers of Venezuela need to note in the midterm, that is to say, in, in the near term and in the midterm, over the next few months and uh, into the next year or year and a half, is the fact that the president has an electoral problem. Um, He's running for president again in 2018. The elections are going to be held in late 2018. But honestly, he's not very popular, and he stands a chance of losing uh, what would be a free and fair election. So right now, what you've started to see is the president trying to insulate himself, trying to force parties to re-register with the National Electoral Council, in the hopes that some of them won't meet the registration criteria and will have to drop off. You're starting to see uh, more actions against prominent opposition leaders trying to invalidate them from being able to run for office just to cut down on the amount of rivals that the president might face in an upcoming election. That really is the government's strategy. It's it's a combination of legal maneuvering and outright threats to uh, to potential opponents. And that the, the problem with that strategy, though, is that the opposition is trying to keep unrest going on the streets every single day and trying to signal, uh, for lack of a better word, to the uh, to the military establishment that, hey, this guy uh, is leading Venezuela down a dark path. And our last hope, essentially, they, and, and this has been set out right by members of the opposition, is for the armed forces to turn on Maduro, uh, not necessarily in the form of a coup, but in the in the loss of support. So the government is trying to defuse a lot of these tensions by holding an election, um, you know, whether it's just a presidential election or holding a presidential election and uh, governor elections, which have been delayed for about a year now, together. But really, the, 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 the important thing to watch right now is the level of unrest on the streets. It doesn't seem like the president can really cut down on this or significantly affect it right now, even if uh, the National Guard and the police are out there day by day putting down the protests. And the president has been reluctant to call out the military for fear that they're just not loyal to him. So the important things to watch at this point are how does the president's strategy evolve? How does the pace of protests evolve? Honestly, at this point, it looks like we're going to be dealing with such demonstrations for months, and there's no real good way for Maduro to cut down on the protests. There's the very realistic chance that we're going to see something happen in, along the lines of either uh, pressure rising on the president from within the party for him to resign, or the president simply deciding, you know what, I'm just going to go straight for this election and let's see what happens. Well, Reggie, I think that that's very well put, and certainly we'll be tracking this very closely on, on Stratford Worldview, uh, waiting to see what develops. And I suspect that in the uh, the future as well, we'll be having another one of these conversations to uh, to talk about how things have, have conspired in the coming months. As always, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me today, Reggie. Thank you, Ben.
We'll get to the second part of the podcast in just a moment. But if you're interested in geopolitical analysis and the range of topics we discuss on the podcast, be sure to visit us at worldview.stratfor.com. Worldview is our new online platform for objective geopolitical intelligence, analysis, and forecasting that reveals the underlying significance and future implications of emerging world events. You can sign up as a registered user to learn more about our work or subscribe for unlimited access to our 20-year archive of geopolitical insight. Now on to the second half of the podcast, where Stratfall VP of Strategic Analysis, Roger Baker, sits down with senior East Asia analyst, Zhijing Zhang, to discuss her recent series exploring the underlying motivations behind China's ambitious Belt and Road Initiative, and also the challenges that Beijing will face going ahead. Hello, I'm Roger Baker. I'm joined here today uh, with our senior analyst for East Asia, Shijing Zhang, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Belt and Road Initiative by China. And we've recently published a four-part series on the Belt and Road. And Shishing, I'm wondering if you could first sort of explain what this is, because there seems to be a lot of misunderstandings internationally as to what Belt and Road is. Is this a project? Is this a specific set of uh, activities that the Chinese are intending to carry out or investments? First, I would say that the Belt and Road itself is more of an initiative and a vision instead of a project. It's nothing concrete. There are some massive uh, connectivity projects that fall into the banner of One Belt Road. But in itself, it's a still a developing strategy, still a developing vision that corresponded with China's involving global vision and also corresponding with the local development conditions as well. So we've seen previous Chinese leaders push Western development or uh, the Iron Silk Road, the Go West programs, things of that sort, but we haven't seen a lot of uh, extreme progress on that. Is there anything different in this initiative? And, and why is why does the Belt and Road seem to be uh, much grander in its vision? I would say first, um, the Belt and Road is different from the previous initiative, is that it ties into different elements into the grand initiative. One is that it intersects with trade, with financial cooperation, with diplomatic relations, and that come hand in hand with the grand connectivity plan in the Eurasia landmass. So like you said, Roger, developing the West is not a new in- initiative. And we see that in several periods, the leader, Chinese leadership tried to develop the interior region through Go West initiative, through the railway development. But um, these are more like spra- uh, nascent form and more like sporadical uh, project-based initiative. So there's a fundamental economic and security demand to develop the Western region to begin with. It's a dynastic um, strategy to defend its heartland from overland threat from the West and North. And that actually dates back to uh, 2nd century BC, when the Han Dynasty first initiated military campaign in the West. That being said, the fundamental logic is there. It's 
certainly not an exception to the People's Republic of China. But those early initiatives are very nascent. It only become uh, when China becomes more uh, economically and diplomatically more capable that the country is trying to put together all this different separated element together to form a more un- a coherent policy. When we look at the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, there are concerns arising in some of the countries around the region that. In some ways, this looks like an imperial moment for China, uh, that China is trying to expand its sphere of influence, that China is trying to become the dominant power in the region and to assert that power, perhaps as a counter to uh, the unipolar United States um, or as a way of China to make up for its lost time when it lost out uh, during uh, European imperialism. Um, How is China dealing with that and how much of this initiative is about the expansion of Chinese power and influence. So indeed, we have seen that there are kind of suspicions um, that rising towards China's Belt and Road Initiative, and there are indeed some resistance and challenge that coming from both regional powers and from individual countries. Russia and India, for instance, for instance, they are looking pretty variously at uh, China's uh, Belt and Road in their own uh, regional backyard. But uh, I would say that first, Belt and Road is an initiative that as much fit for domestic priorities as it is for projecting influence elsewhere. So China is a f- in a period it faced a fundamental economic transformation. It tried to transform its economic b- model from two decades heavy reliance on uh, investment, on export. Uh, uh, low-end export toward a model that more reliant on domestic consumptions. And in that end, we also see that China is in a broader social rebalance to develop its Western regions. And uh, it is where the One Belt and Road Initiative first last on. But um, secondarily, I would say that um, China's leadership tried to shape its One Belt and Road Initiative in a more cooperative manner, and it's tried to frame it as more um, non-exclusive manner. So it contains different elements to draw uh, regional powers and to draw different countries to participate in this grand initiative. And to reduce um, some of the regional suspicions and concerns, it also put effort to um, mitigate those suspicions. For instance, to be able to draw India, who is fiercely resist to China's One Belt and Road Initiative. China is proposing that to India, the South Asia section of One Belt and Road can be renamed as less emphasized on the sovereignty issue between uh, India and Pakistan. And for instance, on Central Asia as well, China is trying to draw cooperation with Russia in a way that it was cautious on its security presence in those Central Asia countries. So I guess a a final thing to ask about here, and I know there's a lot more that we're going to be pursuing on uh, One Belt, One Road, but given the many challenges that China faces in pursuing this, whether it's economic, uh, security, uh, political resistance, social issues, 
how do the Chinese measure success along the way? I would say that China's definition of success is very different. First, um, the initiative is not a project base; it's a grand vision based on perhaps decade-long process to achieve. And in that, certain resistance, certain backtracks could come. But the basic、uh, imperative to develop the Western region and to move forward one belt one road is there, and、uh, it is the driving element for China to continue to move that process. There's a fundamental driver for China to correct its economic imbalance. To correct some of the、uh, problem in this so,、uh, society in the political system, but Chinese leadership always know that their it is their must. At the same time, time is their enemy. So there are grand initiative, grand strategies to accomplish, but those grand strategies cannot accomplish in one term or even in a decade or two. So to measure those success, we probably don't want to think of the way like U.S. building interstate highways or big project. But the success of the One Belt One Road initiative should be measured by how well the state leaders move to address those fundamental issues in China. All right, thank you, Zhijing. This is definitely something that we're going to continue to monitor, both from. China's abilities to manage these complex issues inside of the country, and from the way this has the potential to be reshaping the region around them. Thank you to be here. That concludes this episode of the Stratfor podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the developing crisis in Venezuela or explore our series on China's Belt and Road Initiative. Visit us at worldview.stratfor.com. We'll also include some related links in the show notes. If you have a question or a comment about the podcast, or even an idea for a future episode, let us know. You can call us at one five one two seven four 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 three zero zero extension three nine one seven, or reach us by email at podcast at stratfor.com. And don't forget to leave us a review. We really appreciate your feedback, and your review also helps others discover the podcast. It just takes a few moments, and you can leave a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to the podcast. And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis, and forecasting that brings global events into valuable perspective, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. Thanks for listening.